From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official health care provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While most teams are winding down for the holidays, volleyball is doing just the opposite as they roll into Kansas City for their first Final Four appearance since 2003. At the same time, men's basketball is traveling up and down the East Coast, taking on all comers as they continue building their non-conference strength and schedule. On today's show, we'll go deep into volleyball with head coach Mary Wise and convene our Gator Roundtable to discuss volleyball, basketball, and the latest football staff news with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. But first, nothing comes easy in the high-stakes world of postseason volleyball, where a point here or there often makes or breaks seasons. True to that, the Gators had their backs up against the wall at multiple times during their Elite Eight win over USC, but the bounces went their way. As Mary Wise pointed out at the start of her conversation with Florida Volleyball broadcaster Tom Collette, the Gators appreciate where they are because they also know what it's like to be on the wrong side of a tight margin. Two years ago, it was two points from going right to this match, to the national semifinal. We were right there in a the fifth set. Uh, last year, we were two points away from just advancing to the regional. So it's, it's so difficult and not getting any easier with all the talent around the country. This is volleyball's biggest stage on the collegiate level. What is the biggest challenge that faces you and other members of your staff preparing the Gators to play on this big stage? That's a great question, Tom. I do know that every there's so much history of a team's first year to the national championship how much they get caught up in all the hoopla and don't play their best volleyball. Um, what, what I would hope is the experience, having been there before as a coach, associate head coach Dave Booz has been there twice before as well. And we talked to the team on Sunday night. We talked to them about expectations and trying to keep our routine routine and that the team that can manage the pressure and can play its best volleyball this weekend is a team that's going to win. We say in volleyball, it's not a series. We're not trying to win two out of three. Uh, you just got to win two matches. And at this point, if we can just play our best volleyball, at least I know we have a chance. And you say you have to win two matches, but you can only focus on the one that's right ahead of you. You've got Stanford first. But in terms of style of play and personnel of the team's that are here, which team might be the toughest matchup problem for Florida? Um, you know, at this level, Tom, they're all matchup difficulties because you've got on every team a player or two or three who are going to be um, first team All Americans, perhaps Olympians. You know, going back over the Final Four, you can go from each team that beat us here had a future Olympian on it. And so they're different in some respects in terms of, of the, uh, you know, their strengths. But what the common factor is, they all have elite, elite point scorers. Let's drill down now to what the Gators have to do to be successful here in Kansas City. Let's start with first contact. Serve-receive has been so solid this year. 
It has. Uh, so this match against Stanford, they're very much a drive-it-deep type serve with a lot, uh, lot of speed, similar to USC. And we struggled against USC. So as you can imagine, it's what we've been working on since uh, that last match. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of players. Chanel Hargraves is one of the best we have in the gym, and she's really developed a great serve. So she's been doing a whole lot of serving to mimic the speed and the depths that Stanford servers can bring on you. It seems like, as this season has wound down, the team collectively and a couple individuals, Carly Snyder and Paige Hammonds specifically, who, by the way, have tied Audi Cruz and Carrie Updegraff for the most service aces in a single NCAA tournament already, Ali Monsari also serving it well. It seems like the Gators collectively have served it tougher as we've neared the end of this season. It's been a uh, season-long process, uh, trying to get each and every player to can we run points on them and unfortunately for CK because of the hand injury her serving has kind of taken a back step shoot we were happy that she just got the serve in but now that the hand is beginning to recover and she can now practice with the similar cast that she plays in we hope we can get some more speed off of her serve but Carly Allie as you talked about Paige Hammond's been really one of the the most pleasant surprises with her how fast she can serve a ball and uh, Allie Greggs has been really really good in terms of accuracy so a point run at this level may be just one point off your serve and that's what we're looking for if we each time back is it just get us where the other team isn't in a perfect situation every single time because they're too good the setters are too good the hitters are too good it's really hard to defend when they are in system how do you grade this team running in the 5-2 offense this year you know, I think we've had uh, some matches where both setters have, um, just like last weekend, did such a good job in, in distributing the ball. The connection between Ali Montserrat and Shina, I think it's one of the reasons Shina's numbers have been over 400 for um, over a month. That's Ali Montserrat. Three rotations, that's Ali setting her. Cheyenne Husky continues to do so well. You know, her length gives us opportunity when it's a, t a tight ball that she can make plays. And obviously she's been a force at the net blocking. She, you know, in many ways Cheyenne does benefit playing two ro those rotations with Carly and with Ramat. And they have, their experience and talents have brought Cheyenne along. And, and Cheyenne may be one of the most improved players in the country. And there's no question we're not here in the national semifinal without our two setters. This is the final weekend that fans will see Ramat Al-Hassan playing in the orange and blue. She is at or near the top in every blocking statistical category in Florida history and also a dominant force on the Gator offense. Two 20-kill matches this year, both on the road, by the way, and hitting 423 for her career. In fact, here in Kansas City, fans will be treated to seeing two of the top 10 hitting efficiency leaders of all time in Ramat and Penn State senior middle Haley Washington. Talk a little bit about how Ramat has just really impacted this program over four years. Well, when Ramak uh, signed with us, we felt that if she could stay healthy, she'd have a chance to be all over the record book, and that's what she's done. And it's not just because of her length or her jumping ability, the foot speed, which have all been a factor, but it's really her work ethic her willingness to, to have a beginner's mind. We talk about that being a term that's used in sports about each day when you come into practice, can you think of yourself, how am I going to get better? Can I start over? Where can I improve my game? 
and Ramat, her attention to detail in terms of taking care of her body, uh, her volleyball IQ, she really understands the game, and she plays with a motor of which uh, you named another middle who's got a terrific motor as well. you got two of the best ones right here, and one of those will be wearing orange and blue. For Florida here, Mary, what might be the X factor in this tournament? It seems like through the last month or so, the X factor in some specific matches has been who you have strategically placed at the 0-2 position, whether it be Morgan Greer at Missouri or what Mia did last weekend. Who might be an X factor player that might really be the, the deciding factor to put Florida right there where they need to be? I think you've just uh, mentioned two that have that opportunity. I'm looking at this tournament over the years. There are so many stories of a player, might not have been an All-American, could have been a younger player, but stepped up her game. You know what you're going to get from your experienced uh, All-Americans, but is there a player who in in the biggest moment of her career can put all that aside and just have that go-for-it mentality? And the three-player combination, what what Paige Hammonds has done has just been amazing. For her to anchor, be one of our anchors for our serve-receive and how hard she's worked in that part of our game. And as a freshman, and then as you indicated, Morgan and what she did um, at various times we don't win at Missouri without the play of Morgan. And then Mia hitting over 300 last weekend. We don't need just one of them. We need all three of them. Final question as we wrap up our discussion here with Florida Volleyball Head Coach Mary Wise at the Final Four in Kansas City. What aspect of the game, what do the Gators have to accomplish to come away with two wins here in Kansas City? You know, Tom, these are teams that are so elite offensively. They're pretty darn good defensively. But what can we do to make them uncomfortable? And so what we just have to do is almost like hold serve offensively. But can we create enough uncomfortable situations for the other team's offense, either by taking away their favorite shot or just how we channel the ball or some of the the game plan things that that Dave was up many a nights and will be tonight uh, preparing for? And if we can do that, again, it's like you just want to steal a point or two, but you got to hold serve on your offense. Mary, thanks for joining us here on Gator Tales. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. The volleyball squad took full advantage of being at home last weekend as the boisterous crowd rallied them to victory in what became a raucous scene. So before we directed our Gator Roundtable with Chris and Scott into basketball and football, we began by asking Scott to describe the tense scene at Exact Tech Arena on Saturday night. I'm sitting there and, you know, they're down in the fourth set, trailing the match two to one, and they're on the brink of elimination at 24-23 with USC leading. And they rally and score three in a row and they send it to a fifth set. And then they're down 9-5 there. And it didn't look good for the Gators. And, uh, you know, they made some big plays, obviously, with uh, Shina Joseph up front, had a big kill. Uh, Ramat Al-Hassan had a, a big block and then Joseph, you know, another kill at the end there to clinch it. They came back and won 15 to 11. And, uh, it was really an exciting atmosphere, Adam. I mean, uh, as far as college volleyball goes, the O-Dome, I mean, the crowd was really into it. There was a lot of tension there. It was competition at its best and the Gators win to finally get over that hump. This is a program that, you know, these players on this team, the seniors, uh, some of those people we just mentioned, Shana Joseph, 
Ramat Al-Hassan, Carly Snyder. This is a battle-tested group. They've been to three region finals in four years. Finally got over the hump to get to the Final Four for the first time since 2003. And, uh, you know, they're going to have to, again, face stiff competition like they did uh, at home last week to get to the national title. They're going to obviously have to get by another Pac-12 power in Stanford, uh, defending national champions. So it's it's not going to get any easier for the Gators here in Kansas City, but they showed a lot of resiliency to even get here. And you got to believe that after they came back against USC, I mean, they know they're going to face some tough situations out here. But after going through that and being able to overcome that disadvantage late, they, they got to feel some confidence from that. And certainly you know, the energy in the O-Dome, you, you could feel it even watching on TV. I mean, there, there was there was something special going on there on, on Saturday night. And it seemed like the team really fed off of that and used that to fuel that comeback. Yeah, you know, that team has a very strong uh, fan base in Gainesville. The, definitely, the place was electric. Their attendance was around 4,000. It was loud in there. And uh, it was the kind of home crowd advantage that, you know, Mary Wise had talked about hopefully seeing before the uh, the regional started. And, the you know, Gator fans certainly turned out and did their part. And you're right. When that match, really when it was 9-5, to five, and they went on a 6-0 run to take an 11-9 lead, each point, it just built and built. And then USC comes back and ties it 11 all. So it just added to the tension. But Gators closed it out with four in a row. It started with a, a big block by Rachel Kramer. And then the point that really sent the place into frenzy was uh, Carly Snyder had an ace to make it 14 to 11. And at that point, you know, the Gators are suddenly on the verge of uh, advancing to the final four. So in a matter of, you know, minutes, they went from facing elimination to uh, being on the verge of the Final Four. And obviously the crowd played into that emotionally. The players played into it, which created just a memorable atmosphere. And, you know, unfortunately in this role, I get to see a lot of uh, sports at a high level. And uh, that's up there with anything I've seen in my time around the Gators. So as a sports writer, you cover tons of events. You cover tons of teams. And I think most times you're a neutral party uh, and just observing. Obviously, you work for FloridaGators.com. There is a, a bias, no question. But also, with volleyball, uh, you've taken a real interest in it. And, and I'm curious why. Your article on Friday, you talked about if you don't want to hear something that's you know pro-volleyball and unabashedly cheering, then stop reading now. Why has is, is this particular team captured you? Well, I think, Adam, what I was trying to say there is, uh, you know, this team... They've been knocking at that door for the Final Four for a long time. You know, it's been 14 years. Obviously, this team, two of the last three years, have been at that stage. And I was with them out in Texas in 2015 when a really one of the worst calls I've ever seen in yeah. sports went against them, and it cost them a potential uh, berth in the Final Four that year. So, you know, that part of that was here they are again. Uh, this is a program that does it at the highest standards each year, year in, year out under Mary Wise. And, you know, she's done everything she can do in the sport except win a national title. And I was like, you know, it'd be nice to see see them be able to do this at home to get back to have that opportunity. And uh, sometimes, you know, you just you have to kind of uh, ride it like you're, you know, I, I also know my audience. I know they want it. To <laughs> so I'm not, you know, I just kind of played into the whole thing. And I mean, it was genuine. I mean, I, I really did want to see them get past that point because uh, I've been I've covered those events when they haven't and it's always a difficult period for the team and and disappointment with the the coaching staff and Mary Wise and it was nice to see the 
the story changed there for that group because they do a year in and year out. This has been a really tremendous year for them. I mean, they've only lost one match the whole season mm-hmm. against Kentucky. They went up to Kentucky and binged that with a sweep. And, you know, Mary Wise has had a lot of really good teams over the years. And a, a lot of times for different reasons, uh, you know, they haven't been able to win at all. They made it in 2003 to the national title game. Obviously lost that year to USC, who they, you know, defeated in the match in Gainesville to get back to Kansas City here. So hey, I just went into all of it, Adam, just to kind of tried to capture the scene and what it meant to the program. And the, uh, that's kind of why I went that route, just having a little fun with it. Because once in a while, it's kind of fun to take a different approach. You know, when you do, you go out to these events. And yeah, my job is to obviously try to give a, a, a balanced perspective. But at the same time, like you said, I know the majority of my audience is true Florida Gator fans. So they appreciate that kind of outlook once in a while. You know, while volleyball was staging their epic comeback on Saturday, it was also a, a grind for basketball. Uh, getting a really big win, Chris, and, and that was something that they needed. They had lost three games in a row. Uh, it wasn't always pretty, but they did find a way against Cincinnati to, to get a big win. I made the point to some people, uh, Adam, before before that game going up to Newark, New Jersey, that uh, they could play a really, really good game and still lose to Cincinnati because Cincinnati is a really, really good team, um, a team that was exhibiting and has historically for the last 25 years a toughness, uh, aggressiveness, physicality. Those are the things that Florida had not shown uh, any trace of in the two previous games. And yet going down the stretch, that's what the game became, kind of like a test of wills, tie game with a minute and a half to go. Chris Yoza scores the last six points. Gators kind of stare down the Bearcats and make the plays down the stretch to win the game. And it, it was a huge win. And it's down the line. Once this RPI stuff starts uh, sorting each other out, Cincinnati is going to be in the NCAA tournament. They've been there seven years in a row. Really good win on a neutral court against a very good opponent, a game that uh, Florida could have lost. Instead, made the plays down the stretch and both on offense and defense to win the game. What improvements did you see from the games prior to the Cincinnati game? Because obviously there, there was a lot to take away from Florida State and specifically Loyola. So what did you see that shifted for Florida? The shooting was atrocious in the two games. Uh, it was better. Not it was. It wasn't superb like it was against Gonzaga or Duke or any of the what they did out in in Oregon. But it was better. Shot selection may have been better. They only scored sixty six points. So the scoring is is come down a little bit as they're obviously as their as their shooting has come down. But um, you know, just effort, Adam. I mean, you play a team like Cincinnati when they put shots up, they send four guys to the offensive glass. That's hard to contend with for a team that doesn't rebound well, like Florida. Florida was out rebounding the game. They gave up some offensive rebounds they probably shouldn't have given up. But that was going to happen against this team. They played through it. They got some big rebounds toward the end of the game. They blocked the shot toward the end of the game. They made a steal at the end of the game when the uh, when it was a four-point game in the last possession or whatever. So just a, a toughness and a and a reaction to the stress of the moment. Kayvon Allen was not good in the game. He was on the bench the last seven and a half minutes. He scored two points. He was one of five. He was not aggressive. He played 27 minutes and put these you know had bad numbers up on the board, and yet he was bouncing up and down after the game. He was happy for his teammates. Uh, Mike White made a point of that in the locker room afterwards and how much he appreciated guys pulling for each other so it's a team full of good guys it's not a team full of uh, mean guys I think he would like to see a a little bit of some mean streak come out in some of these guys but I don't know if that's their personality right now Adam but uh, against a team that has exhibited that historically 
they did some stuff to win the game, and, and they're to be commended for it. They've got another break right now during finals, and then, of course, on Saturday, down at Orange Bowl Classic against Clemson. What will that game present them? Well, Clemson's a good team. I mean, they're 8-1 eight, they're eight and one going into that game. They, won a, they killed Ohio State on the road. Uh, they have five starters that average in double figures. This is this could could be bad news. They have a center by the name of Elijah Thomas who's averaging twelve and ten, and we know what uh what kind of field days opposing players that are really good in the post have had against the Gators this year. So it's about improvement. Florida is what it is right now. They don't have Johnny Boonu, they don't have Isaiah Stokes. We don't know when or if those guys are gonna play this season. Uh Chase Johnson is another guy who who has sat out with an illness. That's how they defined it. Uh when he's gonna be back, if he's gonna be back, nobody knows that either. So Florida's an undersized team. It's going to have to play harder than everybody else. It's the same kind of blueprint that they took with them to New Jersey and rolled out against Cincinnati. It would be the same kind of traits they hope to play with down in Sunrise. What I am expecting also, Adam, is maybe last week they tweaked a little bit with the defense against Cincinnati. They started double team in the post, which is something that uh, that helped them. The Cincinnati wasn't ready for it. They even admitted so after the game. They had to adjust to it. I think we're going to see some maybe adjustments to how Florida runs some things offensively. Maybe not so much going through the high post where the center has to make some decisions. Let's let the center, maybe Mike White is saying, find some things rather than create some things because they don't have guys who can create necessarily. I mean, getting the ball in the high post to Gavarius Hayes and Keystone hasn't really done a whole lot for Florida. Uh, when you got those four talented uh, perimeter players, the best thing for them is that for them to have the ball in their hands. The best thing, in my opinion, is for Chris Gioza to have the ball in his hands, spread things out. Let him drive, kick outside, that kind of thing. That's when this team is going to be at its best. Maybe that's what we'll see this weekend against Clemson. You know, it seems like each week when we sit down to do this, there have been multiple hires on Dan Mullen's staff since the last time we spoke. And this week, Scott, that includes a new offensive assistant and a strength coach. Yeah, two more hires, like you said. The first was Brian Johnson as uh, an assistant. Uh, he has, his position hasn't, I don't think, been finalized, at least name. I think maybe quarterback's coach. He's He's been an offensive coordinator at 24. He was offensive coordinator out of Utah. Huh. And to get there, you obviously have to have really uh, inspired some confidence from people. And obviously, his former coach at Utah, Kyle Whittingham, uh, felt he was ready. You got to remember, uh, this guy played quarterback for uh, Utah. Uh, you may remember, Adam, uh, they beat Alabama in the Sugar Bowl a few years ago. Mm-hmm. He was MVP of that game. And just from all accounts, a, a very a mature uh, guy. I mean, obviously he's a uh, 30 now, so I mean, he's grown up, but, uh, he's got some good experience, served as quarterbacks coach and offensive coordinator at Houston last year, had worked with Dan Mullen at Mississippi State. So it's another, uh, familiar face for Mullen. They understand each other's ideas on offense. They understand how to develop quarterbacks. You know, Mullen has a track record of developing quarterbacks. So for Brian Johnson to get hired, that means Mullen obviously. They're on the same page when it comes to that position and offensive philosophy. So interesting hire, and he's already out with Mullen on the recruiting trail. So he got right to it. And obviously, the other guy you mentioned, Nick Savage, as a street coach, he's right in. He's already in the weight room, uh, mapping out some plans for when those guys return in January. Another guy who's worked with Mullen at Mississippi State, but Gator fans will, will remember the guy that Savage got his start under. Mickey Mariotti, uh, who was obviously the strength and conditioning coach at Florida under Urban Meyer. Uh, he's at Ohio State now where Nick Savage started out under him. 
made his way down to Mississippi State for Mullen. Now he's coming to Florida. He's only 28, so he's going to inject some real energy into the program, into mm. the weight and strength staff. So as far as what Mullen has talked about so far uh, since he's taken the job, I mean, he's stressed that strength and conditioning program as much as anything so far. So you know this was a huge hire for him. And uh, really, there's nobody more important in the football organization basically from the start of the year until spring ball than the strength and conditioning coordinator because he really sets the tone within the program and uh so nick savage that's his task now and uh, i'm sure he's there getting ready to get started and it's going to be kind of a new outlook i'll be interested to see what kind of uh, changes he implements and, and stuff once he really gets deep into it one guy he will not have the chance to work with who is already really really strong i don't know how much stronger he could get but that would be Taven Bryan. He announced that he is leaving early and ahead to the draft, though he does say it was a very difficult decision because of his belief in Dan Mullen and his ability to turn around the program, but certainly a big loss for Florida on the defensive line. Yeah, you know, Taven Bryan had a, his best year this year, obviously. He was a guy that kind of played in the shadows up there, and you always knew that he, he was a physical specimen. They had a lot to learn about the game when he first got at Florida. And it started to show on the field, uh, you know, this year. You remember that game against Texas A&M? That was kind of his breakout game. He really dominated, had, I think, a couple sacks and just some big tackles. And he shot up some uh, mock drafts at that point. And, you know, he's six foot four, about 300 pounds, and he can move like a linebacker. I mean, this guy is, like I said, he's, he's truly just a, a great combination of strength and speed and power, what you're looking for. There's already talk that he could be a first-rounder early second rounder and when you get to that point as a college player you know you have a year eligibility most guys are going to come out so I think it's a smart move on Taven Bryan's part uh, especially you know there is a transition in the program now so it, it just everything lined up for him and he felt it was his best decision so you know best of luck to him but I think uh, like I said I think whoever gets him uh, they're going to get a player who has a huge upside. Right, let's jump into our PAT this week, which is inspired by the ongoing shenanigans in Los Angeles. Uh, LeVar Ball has a very difficult time staying out of the media, and it's created some issues for the Lakers. It's not that anybody couldn't have seen this coming. If you didn't see it coming, it was probably negligent on your part. But Lonzo Ball is clearly a talented player. No one questions that. What I would ask you guys is let's put you in the position of, of the Lakers would you want a player like Lonzo Ball on your team if it meant dealing with a dad like LeVar Ball? No. What's next week's point after question? <laughs> <laughs> you think I'm joking? I'm not. I mean, this guy thinks he's, I don't know, he thinks he's the coach. He thinks he's the general manager. I know he's his dad and he's a proud father and good for him. I'm a proud father of my daughter and Scott's a proud father of his three children. But that doesn't give you the right to be a carnival barker. That's what this guy is. That's all he cares about is having attention on himself, having attention on his kids. And I, I just have a hard time believing that the children are, are, are comfortable with this. I mean, can you imagine he had gone through with his quote unquote news conference in China when they were holding his, his kid in a, in a, you know, detaining him for whatever reason, however long that would have been. I think he's probably still be there. Maybe there a lot longer than that. So, to, so I, I know I've, I've probably rambled a little bit, but uh, Steve Spurrier, I remember he used to tell me about uh, quarterback dads are the worst. Maybe point guard dads are the worst, actually, and especially this guy's father. I mean, I'm going to go no as well. A lot of what Chris said I agree with. Uh, 
I certainly agree with what Charles Barkley said, if you saw that. I think it's direct quote. I just don't like this guy at all. Well, guess what? I'm kind of like Charles. I don't like him at all either. You know, he's out for himself, I think, more than his kids. And uh, it's working. That's the problem. It's working. And, you know, here we are talking about him. He's on ESPN all the time. And he's all over the Internet. And, you know, it's just a sign of our times. But I think, you know, you've got to question his motives. And if you are the Lakers coach, or whether it's Luke Walton or you're, you're the GM or you're one of the people up in the organization, I mean, at what point is benefits, do they just outweigh the, the headaches? And, you know, it's unfortunate for Lonzo Ball because, you know, he, he's a very talented player. And yet he's probably answering more questions about his dad than he is about the game he had last night against the Clippers. And, you know, that puts him in a, a pretty bad spot and as a father. You would think that you would want, you know, your kid to be in the best position to succeed. And I don't know if, you know, creating all this drama off the court around the team, around yourself is the way to go about it. So I don't know. Maybe it gets better for Alonzo Ball eventually. Maybe he cuts ties. We've seen it over the years. These parents, you know, whether it's Todd Marinich's father. I mean, remember Richard Williams was criticized a lot in the early uh, career of his daughters. Uh, it seemed to get better over time for them as they got older. Maybe that'll be the case with Lonzo Ball, but certainly um, I agree with Chris and Charles Barkley. I don't like but, the guy, man. But we've never seen this with a with a professional athlete. Maybe some, maybe some with uh, I don't know Kevin Durant's mom or something, or 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 uh, uh, Rasheed Wallace's mom. I'm trying to Allen Iverson's mom, but not to this degree. It's I mean it's, it's that times a million. I just don't see where there's anything good for it as far as as far as the kids concerned. I think he does a good job of of kind of you know keeping things uh, pointed at where they need to be pointed. But if it's up to his father, his his father would be doing all the press conferences for his son. His father would take credit for any kind of triple double that uh that his son that his son ever had. No doubt. And you know his you know his teammates have to rib him on this. Oh, hey, sure. what's your dad saying today? I mean, that's got to be bad for the kids. Yeah, right. No, it's it's not a it's not a good situation. But uh, I'll tell you, it is a good situation. The fact that people can check out. Everything you guys are churning out this week on FloridaGators.com. Scott from Kansas City following volleyball. And Chris, of course, will be down in South Florida with basketball. Make sure to check out at Gators Scott on Twitter, at Gators Chris, and uh, at them if you want to talk some Gator sports, as always. Uh, guys, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow Volleyball's pursuit of their first national title beginning on Thursday night against Stanford at 9 on ESPN. Then check out our new episode next Thursday to find out all about it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Kansas City.